Chapter 10 Anticipating the Onslaught Friday, 17 July, 1970 War Games Preparation The Caribbean Sea near Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, 0500 The maneuvering watch was posted at 0500, at which time the ship shifted from shore power to ship power, and the officer of the deck, Lieutenant Winchester, shifted the watch from the quarter-deck to the flying bridge. The last mooring line was dropped, and the boats that made of the watch blew the long whistle blast and passed the word to shift colors. The jack and the ensign were hauled down smartly, and the steaming ensign was hoisted on the gaff, and the ship's call sign was hoisted from the signal bridge. On the bridge was the captain, Mr. Winchester, who had the con, Mr. Winthrop, the navigator, Commander McCormick. The card pulled out of Mayport Bay and turned east to the shipping lane that would eventually lead them south toward Guantanamo Bay and their next big adventure. We're in the shipping lane, said Mr. Winthrop. Very well, acknowledged Mr. Winchester. The captain slid off his chair and handed for the gangway to the lower decks. He stopped just before he entered and turned to Mr. Winchester. Mr. Winchester, sir, point her south and let her eat. Aye, aye, sir. The morning meal was piped at 0630. Secure the mess decks was piped at 0700. 1000. The ship cleared the channel and entered in the open sea. 1030. The clanging of the ship's bell and the echoic blast of the quartermaster's voice came over the 1MC. Now, General Quarters, General Quarters, all hands man your battle stations. This is a drill. This is a drill. All hands man your battle stations. The crew hopped up from where they were, ran to their battle stations. Those on the weather decks donned their battle helmets and life jackets. They waited for further instructions. The 1MC came alive, and the boats that made of the watch shouted, Now stand by and give ear to the captain. This is the captain speaking. Between here and Gitmo, we will remain in battle condition X-ray. We will have constant drills to prepare us for what we will experience in the next several days. We must learn to work together under battle conditions. We must know that each sailor on the ship is committed to the task at hand and committed to each other. And furthermore, we must know that each sailor is competent to do the job that is needed done when it is needed to be done. We must develop faith in ourselves as individuals and faith in ourselves as a team. We must learn this ship and learn to have faith in our ship and in our equipment. The captain stepped away from the 1MC and the boatswain's mate keyed the toggle switch. That's all. Carry on. The drills began again. Drill after drill. There were man overboard drills, abandoned ship drills, damage control drills, and casualty drills. The bridge and the CIC also conducted evasive action drills. With their defensive drills were offensive drills, torpedo and gunnery drills, depth charge setting and firing drills as fast as they could be initiated. The officers and chiefs served as umpires, taking time readings and accuracy checks, correcting mistakes and repeating the event until time objectives were met. All this lasted through the noon meal. GM-1 Phelps made rounds to each gun position, offering corrective measures. Everyone noticed a distinct change in her tone of voice. She was almost friendly. 1400. The order to set condition Yankee was piped. 
One-third of the crew was secured to get rest and chow and report again in four hours, while another third took their turn, followed by the next turn, followed by the next third. Donaldson had spent the last 72 hours in Radio Central in enemy contact drills. He entered the gangway through the afterhatch and descended down the ladder. He did not remove his clothing, but he just fell on his rack and slept. Four hours he was allowed before relieving the watch. He was so exhausted he slept through gunnery exercise. For four hours there was a constant barrage of torpedoes, hedgehogs, and depth charges, as well as anti-aircraft and surface-to-surface cannon fire just above where he was sleeping. When he awoke, he took quite a ribbing from his shipmates in the same birthing area, who remained awake because of the ear-piercing noise and the bone-jarring vibrations that the little ship endured. The entire ship's company drilled at GQ, as well as their daily jobs under the worst possible conditions. These drills helped them to get very good and the needed responses to each event and making the correct responses within a few seconds. GM-1 Phelps and PN-3 Benson met again in the forward gun mount. Sundown was coming on, and Phelps wanted to go over some last-minute preparations and practice before the big day that would consume their attention and tax their skills to the max. Phelps tested Benson from the second-class gunner's mate manual. When Lieutenant Grubal came by to check on them, Benson was reciting as Phelps followed along in the manual. The projectile consists of fine, distinct parts. The ogive is in the nose, the streamlined forward part. The burlet is forward-bearing surface of the body, which steadies the projectiles on the gun barrel, then the body. 1500. Excuse me, Gunner, Miss Grubal interrupted. We need you in the ward room. We're going over some Gitmo attack problems, and we need the benefit of your thinking. I'm on my way, Lieutenant. Lieutenant Grubal did not wait for her as she proceeded to the wardroom. Okay, Benson, now keep at it, and I'll be back as quick as I can. There will be a test. Not to worry, matey, said Benson in his long John Silver's accent. I'll be right here, and I give ye my affidavy. I will not slip me cables. Then see that you don't, you old sea dog, or I'll have you clapped in irons, she responded in the same tone. Arr, Benson replied, and they both laughed. 1600. GM-1 Phelps and PN-3 Benson met again in the forward gun mount. After rehearsing the sequence of action for the umpteenth time correctly, Phelps turned to face Benson. She leaned against the gun mount, and placing her hand on Benson's right shoulder, she looked into his eyes and said, You know, when we are in the heat of battle, Gitmo, I may shout at you in a way that, well, will not be very ladylike. I, the apprentice, held up his left hand to stop her in mid-sentence. Not to worry, he interrupted. You know what you're doing, and what needs to be done, and how it needs to be done, quickly. I will try to stay up with you. But if you need to get tough, have at it. I like you, Robbie. You're a good man. I think we'll do all right out there. Robbie, he thought to himself. Not Benson. I like you, Brenny, and I think you're right. She smiled. Well, she didn't punch me in the chops for calling her Brittany, he thought to himself. Lieutenant Junior Grade Gilliam loved the feel of the ship under him as it sped along toward the next port of call. He hadn't had much opportunity to experience the ship at sea in a long time, and he missed it. He bathed in the pounding and the bounding over the main as his ship moved steadily southward, her screws turning up a white and cream-colored wake astern. 
No sailor ever grows tired of the experience of a sturdy ship beneath him and the vast latent power of the sea around them and the crew of competent professional seafarers on duty. Ahead of them, the open sea and the horizon, which never seemed to get nearer. As he stood on the O2 weather deck, near the number two aft gun, he peered out across the open waters. Not a speck of land, just sky and ocean. You can see the edge of the earth, he thought. He always marveled at the sight of the curvature coming out of the sea on the port side, arching over and descending back into the sea on the starboard side, and how it rose and fell with a slow, timeless regularity. He directed his focus to the hum of the engines and the vibrations on the deck, and everything attached to the ship. After a few hours on board a ship at sea, the brain's natural sensory reduction mechanism kicks in, and you don't hear it or feel it. But there are times when you want to hear it and feel it, like a newborn baby listening to his mother's heartbeat. Saturday, 18 July 1970, entrance to Guantanamo Bay Training Area, 1500. Those of the crew who had access to a porthole, an open hatch, or a weather deck, watched the Guantanamo section of the Cuban island come into view, and watched it as it grew nearer and nearer. They were entering a war zone, for the new adventure awaited those who were here for the first time, and those who were here before actually looked forward to another exciting and challenging experience. The drills were tough. Now they were over. The next drills would be under the scrutiny of umpires in hostile action conditions. The card was the last ship in the squadron to enter the Guantanamo Bay area. Sundown was two hours away, and the Caribbean skies were beginning to streak with pink and peach colors. Mr. Goldsmith had the con. Lieutenant Sterling was lounging in CIC, sipping a cup of tea, and reading Armed Forces news delivered from Radio Central. The radarman turned to CIC Lieutenant. Lieutenant, this is a peculiar bogey. It's streaming commercial fishing radar, but there's a lot of other interference, like a thermal barrier. The bogey, whatever it is, is not shaped like a fishing vessel. The CIC boss shifted in her chair to take a look. Let me hear it, she said. The sonarman handed her the headset. Hmm. This is peculiar. Get your waski up here. Bridge, CIC. Bridge, I. Sir, we have a bogey on the scope. It looks very suspicious. We will give you a better idea of what it is in a few minutes. Very well. The messenger found Jaworski in the galley, with Hillman and Furman sipping a cup of coffee and snacking on a butt cake. Jaworski hurried up to CIC with anxious enthusiasm. He loved the peculiar and the strange. He had the opportunity to experience many such phenomena, both unexplained and cleverly disguised. He took the con on the scope and the headphones, and the other CIC crew looked on. Have you seen anything like this? Sterling asked. Not exactly like this. Mixed signals, like a fishing vessel with a thermal overmodulation. I can tell you what I think it is, and I'll bet you a cup of Radio Central coffee I'm right. The Amberjack has been known to come out to get the signature of the ships it will be battling. They get the scent of each ship, and that gives them the advantage in the big show. They come out disguised as a fishing vessel or some other benign vessel, or as an ocean phenomenon. The ships pay no attention to it. The captain would enjoy this, said Lieutenant Sterling. The last word that he was in his cabin. Messenger, go fetch the captain. I'm on my way. The CIC messenger knocked on the captain's door. Enter. The messenger opened the door and stepped inside. Captain, CIC has a bogey on the screen. Lieutenant Sterling thinks you might be interested in it. 
Has Jaworski seen it? Yes, sir. He has a good idea what it is all about. The captain grabbed his hat and stood up. Let's go see it. The messenger was pleased with the captain's enthusiasm. The code entry system buzzed and released the door. As it popped open, the captain stepped in the dark room, illuminated with light green and yellow glow from computer monitors. Additional lighting came from small, incandescent lights around the perimeter. There were overhead lights, of course, but they were not used when CIC was in full operation. Got something interesting, I hear, said the captain, as he navigated the narrow pathway between operator positions with their computers and monitors and other interesting-looking equipment. He stood behind Jaworski. Jaworski remained seated, but he turned toward the captain. I'm willing to bet this is the Amberjack playing possum and getting the signatures of the adversaries, but we can get his signature so we'll know it next time we see it. So what I think you're saying here is that the Amberjack is going to sneak up on us before the actual drill begins. He'll come into range under his cloak, and then turning on the system at the last minute, catching us before we have time to go to GQ. Isn't that against the rules? asked Lieutenant Sterling. Well, it's a gray area in the rule books, but as long as they're not active before the drill actually starts, they're legit, Jaworski replied. The captain touched his finger to the monitor. Show this signature to the CIC crew, Jaworski. I want you here when the drill begins. When this fox shows up, looking innocent, we know it's him, and we'll be ready. Bridge, CIC, the captain called. Bridge, I. Send your messenger to assemble all the officers, chiefs, and first-class petty officers. I'll meet them in the mess deck in 15 minutes. Aye, aye, sir. The officers, chiefs, and first-class petty officers were assembled on the mess decks as ordered. The captain entered through the front door. Attention on deck, one of the chiefs shouted. Everyone sprang to attention. At ease, ladies and gentlemen. Everyone sat down and turned their attention to the captain. These types of meetings in the mess deck were not unusual, but when they included officers, chiefs, and a certain enlisted, it was usually something that pertained to each department, something the enlisted would need to know, since it would probably be them to take the first action. It was also something the captain wanted to keep under wraps. Jaworski believes the Amberjack will sneak up on us in some disguise before the drill begins. When he does, I'll call prepare for general quarters. When that word is passed, I want everyone to go to their battle stations quickly and quietly. When the battle drill begins, we will sound GQ. At that time, we put on the gear and we're set. I have a suspicion we will get one shot at the Amberjack. And if we don't get him, he'll get us or we'll lose him. Then we're in for a major run. Any questions? There were none. Very well then, said the captain. This might be a good time to take another look at the strategic plan that we made in Baltimore. Let's run another situation analysis of the events we're likely to face in combat readiness exercises. I don't believe there is a sailor aboard that doubts that we can actually score enough to qualify. And frankly, I think most of us believe we can actually win most of the contest in spite, or maybe because of our dubious reputation. We've been through some learning experiences. Our drills have been so successful, we can perform them at combat level in our sleep. We've been in some harrowing experiences these last few months, especially the last few days. We've proven to ourselves that we're professional sailors, and our ship has withstood the challenges. I think we need to have some arrogance as we take on the adversarial force. He smiled as he placed his right foot on a nearby chair and leaned in. Placing his right elbow on his right knee, he said, 
We've talked about this back in Baltimore, and I think we know what we're supposed to do. And if our drill results are any indication, I would say we know how to do it. We all realize that we will encounter some unexpected surprises, but I'm confident that we can override and overcome any tactic. He paused for a minute to get a reading from the crew. All in favor of winning? Say aye. They all shouted, aye. All opposed? Nay. Everyone laughed. Get a good night's sleep. We have a big day tomorrow, said the captain. With that, he saluted his crew, retrieved his hat from the table in front of him, and walked out the door. Attention on deck, Mr. McCormick shouted. They all stood up. If the captain was attempting to motivate his crew to make a good showing at the games, as Mr. Falk called them, he did indeed succeed. It would be near sunset when the warship would be berthed to destroyer submarine piers at the south end of the Navy base. Ships are usually tied up to each other side by side, creating a nest of ships. The first ship in got to tie to the pier. The second was tied to that ship, and so on and so on. This time, the first ship would be one carrying the Admiral's flag, the USS Lansing DD-770. Two ships from Res Desron 35 were next, the Longmire, DE-219, Brizard, DD-734, and finally, the Roberts, DE-749, from Res Desron 34. The card pulled into the combat drill piers at 2,000 hours. They were again berthed on the outer portion of the nest, meaning the crew had to cross over the other ships in the squadron to get to dry land. Couldn't be helped. But to be tied up to anything that connected them to the land would be welcome, after all they had been through. As in Norfolk and Mayport, they were up against a Roberts DE-749. It seemed like every sailor from both ships lined the railings to see if the card would scratch up those new numbers. If they couldn't do this in the daytime, they were sure to goof it up in the haze of dusk. As the XO had promised, Mr. Goldsmith had to con. Mr. Winthrop, stood next to him, expecting to make docking suggestions, if needed. Mr. Goldsmith had done his homework, and they pulled in correctly the first time. A cheer went up from both ships. Mr. Goldsmith breathed, and Mr. Winthrop gripped the O.D.'s shoulder and said, Well done, Marshal. All is forgiven. You may come home. The captain of the Roberts chuckled, shook his head, and waved at the captain of the card, who returned the wave. The two captains then repaired to their prospective cabins. Line handlers from the Roberts in the car threw the thick mooring lines and threaded them through the line chocks, tying the proper marlin spike seaman knots, securing the two vessels close enough to lay a brow, but with enough distance to allow the drafting and the sea movement. As soon as the first mooring line was made fast, the boats and made of the watch passed the word to shift colors. The ship's call sign and steaming ensign were hauled down and the jack and the ensign were raised. The ship shifted from ship power to shore power, and the O.O.D. shifted his watch from the flying bridge to the quarter-deck. 20.30. The captain went below to the mess-decks to see for himself if what he suspected was true. No one was in the mess-deck area, so he stepped back in the galley. Sure enough, there was the O.O.D., the duty M.A.A., and the doctor, and Furman, eating steak and eggs, homemade biscuits, and gravy, while Hillman looked on with pride and pleasure. Hillman noticed the captain enter the galley and shouted, Attention on deck! The O.O.D., the doctor, Furman, and the M.A.A. jumped to attention, all of them looking like 
one who was caught with her hand in the cookie jar. The captain surveyed the situation and then said, I see we have added a new item to the plan of the day, eight o'clock report rations. I trust you will care for the midnight OOD with midrats as well. Sir, Hillman tried to explain the embarrassment. The captain held up his hand to stifle any attempt at explanations from either of them. Carry on. He walked out of the galley, smiling and shaking his head from side to side. The captain expected as much. Hillman did not report to the OOD at 2000 to muster as a restricted person. The OOD reported to him and ate elegant food. Hillman was reputed as doing this every night since he has been on board the ship. He maintained his political standing by feeding the officers and the petty officers who manned the quarterdeck and security watches at 2000. He was also available to assist the mess cooks during mid-rats, even when he was not on duty. Chapter 10. Executive Assessment Employing the Team When the Plan is Threatened We explored the SWOT analysis earlier. It is difficult to identify all the threats before your engagement. You can expect unidentified or newly introduced threats during the engagement. When your executive team discovers a problem threat, pull the team together to determine how each department head should proact toward it. The final decision is the chief managers, of course, but a focused team effort is always the most effective. Jaworski and the CIC team discovered the Amberjack and decided it was using clandestine methods for sizing up their adversary attack, not against the rules, but definitely the gray area of fair play. The captain made a plan to deal with them. He knew the Amberjack would sneak up on them before the actual exercise began and catch the card off guard. He decided to call prepare for general quarters, a code that meant for all hands to quietly and quickly report to their GQ stations. When the word was passed to commence the operation, the official call to general quarters would be piped, and at that time they would don helmets and life vests. The Jack's radar would go on and CIC would identify their position, and the card would commence attack operations. This method was also in the gray area. Using that same gray area analogy, one must ask, is it appropriate to use the same tactics on an adversary that they're using against you? Is it ever appropriate to use a dark gray area as a defense or an offense to counter their plans? Mr. Goldsmith was the conning officer when the other entry mishaps occurred, yet the captain and the XO insisted on him being the conning officer when entering the nest at Gitmo in the dark. I'm sure Mr. Goldsmith was wondering why they would put him in that precarious situation again. A third time may very well cripple his self-esteem, not to mention his influence on the other officers and crew. But we have come to know Mr. Goldsmith, and we have witnessed his attention to detail and ability to learn from mistakes, his and others. When you have an executive with those character traits, the risk of another mistake similar to the ones he or she made in the past is greatly reduced. We can expect this executive to make good on the next attempt. They need encouragement and recollection of their skills and mental abilities from their boss and the admonition to be better prepared next time. Usually the next time will be a success because the executive will ensure it. It is amazing what that does for their self-esteem as well as their influence on others in the organization. Executives make mistakes, of course, and sometimes they make several in succession. While those mistakes can cost the company money, 
lost market share, or other missed opportunities, and of course, embarrassment to the one who made the error. This is not usually the most memorable or hurtful outcomes of a mistake. Consider those times when you or a colleague made a public mistake or failed either for a wrong action or inaction in the same way that affected the organization. What was the most difficult issue to bear? Their failure to live up to the obligation to others and failed to meet the expectations of subordinates and peer executives. We should also mention the despair of not performing for their boss. This is a great mechanism for learning more about themselves. When the executive has acted with unearned pride and self-assurance, a failure will usually bring them back to reality. Pride goes before the fall. For those executives who exercise appropriate leader behavior, a failure or big mistake will call attention to those limitations. A person needs to know their limitations. No one is perfect, and the executive needs to be cognizant of that, not only in their own experience, but also in the behavior of others. I read once where an R&D executive took on a project that appeared to have great potential. The decision cost the company $100,000. She went directly to the boss and informed him. He told her to be more careful the next time. And she said, you mean I'm not fired? I can't fire you now, he said. I have $100,000 invested in you. Hillman was on restriction. The captain noted that the restricted man did not report to the duty officer, but instead made a meal and invited the duty officer and the watches to enjoy the meal. Was this good leadership, to have this breach of policy? Sometimes there are circumstances where it is permissible to allow a breach in policy or protocol one just documents the event and makes it apparent this is not establishing precedence, but it is dealt with on a case-by-case basis. Command Axiom The enlightened commander who will use the highest intelligence of command for the purpose of spying and thereby achieve a great result, Sun Tzu Art of War. The end and aim of spying in all its variety is knowledge of the enemy, and this knowledge can only be derived, in the first instance, from the converted spy. Hence, it is essential that the converted spy be treated with the utmost liberality. Sun Tzu, Art of War.